It's time to talk sports. It's Hacksaw's Headlines. A panorama of the world of sports. Stories, comments, and opinions. Now, here's iconic sports talk show host Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and co-host John Riley. It's a Thursday. Who wants to talk sports? We do. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, along with my co-host, John Riley. We welcome you to our weekly Thursday podcast as we broadcast from our studios in San Diego. John, before we get started, because we have pennant races to talk about, (laughs) a ton of problems and controversies in the National Football League and NBA suspension, the opening of the hockey season and what it means to hockey fans here in San Diego, let's explain how our podcast works. We are live, obviously, on YouTube, on Facebook, on Twitter. We'll be on the audio platforms also for you to listen. We invite everybody who is joining us every Thursday on our live stream to go to my website, LeeHacksawHamilton.com, and subscribe so you can get the different alerts as we post things every day. And more importantly than just that, the mechanics of what we're going to do at the end of today's podcast, the Fans Forum. Okay, thanks, Lee. I think you covered part of it. So, you know, we are live streaming here on Facebook, on YouTube, and on Twitter. If you're on Facebook or YouTube, you can participate in the uh, the podcast. We'll take your questions and comments. Just type them in the in the chat section. They'll appear here on our screen. And at the end of the podcast episode, we'll have the Fans Forum, and Hacksaw will take your questions. All right, let's start with my question to you. How amped are you? Padre baseball continues. Dodgers in San Diego, Friday, Saturday, games three, four, National League Division Series, maybe a fifth game back at Dodger Stadium on Sunday. This team has come together right time they're hot and john they are healthy what do you think um i think san diego is fired up the fans are excited it's been a long time uh, since they've been able to participate in the playoffs I mean, it's been since 06 since the fans have been available to get in the stadium and watch the team play so i mean this whole playoff ser- uh, the whole playoff uh you know situation is, it's good you know the mariners are in there and the padres are in there so we're fired up it was an amazing game last night um so yeah we're well, going to be in petco on friday and here we go all right let's talk about people responsible for why we are where we are you wanted to start with the manager i want to talk about the team go ahead okay so yeah Bob Melvin, I mean, what a what a special guy he is, isn't he? I mean, he's a he's from Palo Alto, you know, kind of up from the neck of woods where I was from. But he's like they always say he's the calm influence, the slow and steady guy. But you know, he, you saw him in the game; he was fired up, he was rooting on his guys. But I just love the way that he is so supportive of players like Trent Grisham when they've gone through those tough stretches. He's always been there, and he believes in his guys. I think Bob Melvin, and we said this when he was hired, and I wrote about it extensively website that that Bob Melvin is not going to see anything in the Padre dugout that he's not seen before in other places, whether that's Oakland or prior to that, as a manager, as a bench coach, and as a player. He's a baseball lifer. So anything that's going on with Bob Melvin now, he's visited before. He knows how to respond and react. He can be tough on his team when he needs to be tough on his team. There have been lone exceptions where he's had to invoke that card. But, John, he is he's hit the right buttons, and I think that's the correct term. Who do you play, when you 
play them, how you use them, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And the reason the Padres won at City Field in New York is because guys at the bottom of the batting order bailed out the guys at the top of the batting order mm-hmm. who were not producing. The bottom of the batting order, led by Trent Grisham, who came out of the doldrums, he was hitting 080 over a three or four week span. And then he, he gets red hot, hits two home runs, drives in runs, is on base. Trent Grisham made a big difference in the bottom of the order. Cronenworth started to make a difference, and the catcher, Austin Nola, started to make a difference. Now, suddenly, that's a very good team. So he's been able to message to the guys in the dugout, on the bench, in the clubhouse, in the lineup, this is what we're going to do. And these guys have responded very positively. I think the other factor, and I guess this is an an intangible, I don't think the Padres fear the Dodgers anymore. Uh, the, the the win in New York when they beat up Max Scherzer and then followed that by winning game three against Chris Bassett. When they did that, I think it just infused enormous confidence on this Padre team that they can compete with anybody. And, of course, I've said philosophically, John, good pitching beats good hitting. And for the most part, the Padres have gotten great starting pitching. And this bullpen has been spectacular. Mets series has now been transferred to Dodger Stadium. What those guys coming out of the pen have done, this is suddenly, emotionally, I think, a very different team. And it's just not Manny Machado leading the way. It's suddenly that whole 25-, 26-man roster that's contributing. Yeah, it seems like they've had this potential that they've never lived up to during the regular season. As fans, we were always frustrated. But it's all coming together now. And uh, and like you say, Melvin's pushing the right buttons because he's got to kind of manage the rotation of Drury and of Bell and of Myers. And he seems like he's playing the right guy, playing the hot hand. And Myers has been terrific, especially defensively at first base. Now, not everything is peaches and cream here because we're going into this this Friday game and the Padres got a problem with their pitching staff. I think it's a bigger problem than anybody is letting on. We got Blake Snell, Jekyll, and Hyde. What happens? Good start, bad start. Good start, huge pitch count doesn't get through the third or fourth inning. I'm not sure which Blake Snell is going to show up against the Dodgers on Friday night. That's a big issue. Now, they do have a wild card in the equation because they got multiples of starting pitching. This might be a Blake Snell, Sean Manaya set up on Friday. If Snell puts a lot of guys on base and runs a pitch count into the 80s in the third inning, he'll be out. <laughs> yeah, he will. And they'll go to Manaya. Now, Manaya has been Jekyll and Hyde, too. He's had a couple of good starts at the tail end, but you never quite know right now what you're going to get from him. Now, he is rested, and when he's had extra rest, I think he's come back and he's really pitched on the edge. So that's the big issue there. Now, from the Dodgers' perspective, I'll be very honest with you. I, I think the Padres are, are not only in their head – and on their body, and they're in their mind, and they're on their pitching staff. Now the Dodgers have got pitching problems because we saw Julio Urias, and we saw Kershaw, who struggled a little bit, but he's vintage Kershaw. Now the Dodgers go to the third starter, and it's Tony Gonsolin, who's been on the disabled list since mid-August with a forearm problem. He's only had one outing since then. They don't know how many innings they're going to get from Gonsolin. That becomes an issue. Now, they got a wild card. Left-hander Andrew Haney, who had been part of that rotation most of the season. He had fought through some injuries. He's healthy. If Gonsolin gets into hot water, I can see the Dodgers going to get Andrew Haney and putting him into the mix. And then the third guy in the equation 
and he's going to show up in the series yet. We don't know how long he goes, is Dustin May, uh, the, the flamethrower who spent a year rehabbing the shoulder, then had a bit of a back issue in August. He's back, he's ready, and he can pitch. The weirdest part of the whole Dodger negotiations, when they came up with the final guys on the roster, they left Craig Kimbrell off because he's been so erratic as a closer. So Dave Roberts has got a whole pile of questions as it relates to his pitching. So interesting to watch the Dodger dugout, just like we're going to watch the Padre dugout. If these two starters get in trouble, how quick do they go to the hook and go to the next man up, be it Andrew Haney or possibly Sean Manaya? Yeah, I mean, Gonsolin, they're saying maybe he can get two innings, maybe three on Friday night. Um, but how about Blake Trinan? I mean, he, they trotted him out last night. He is not the same Blake Trinan. Nope. And that's who Cronenworth hit the bomb off of. So, yeah, you, you, you were talking earlier, like a, few, like a few weeks ago, about the challenges with the Dodger bullpen. It's for real. And the national media are talking a lot about how no one knows their role. Am I a sixth-inning guy, an eighth-inning guy? There's really no established closer since Kimbrell's not there. So Dave Roberts has got some management he's got to handle. Also, what do the Dodgers do with the bottom half of their batting order? They got a lot of guys hitting 167. I mean, Justin Turner, a buck 67. Cody Bellinger, who just has lost his ability to hit, he's hitting 167. Austin Barnes, 0.00. Trace Thompson, 0.00. I think it's going to be a different batting order for the Dodgers on Friday night against Blake Snell. The Padres, everybody is contributing right now. So I, I think the most unique aspect to what we're going to see Friday, Saturday, at least at Petco Park, is the pitching staff and the strength in numbers. I'm not going to say it's going to be a bullpen day, but they got the arms in reserve. Only only concern I have with the Padres is they've used that bullpen a lot. And you're asking these guys to come back and pitch a third time in maybe a four-day window? Or has the Dodgers got those healthy starters who've been sitting there who can probably give them more valuable innings? It's going to be fun. And at the end of the day, the Padres are no longer scared of the Dodgers. And I think the Dodgers have to be scared because the Padres fought back in the first game even though they lost. And then the Padres came back and won game two. So now it's a best of three series. Don't you love playoff baseball? Oh, it's awesome. I mean, <laughs> last night was terrific. And we get the goose on the fields. I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff going on. But Petco is going to be red hot on Friday night. Gaslamp Quarter, the place to be. Now, we got some other baseball questions you wanted to post. This is a little bit of off the field business. Yeah. I mean, with the, you know, we've been talking a little bit earlier about Petco and the, and the Padres and setting coming close to setting attendance records but you know we're seeing a lot of other teams that are that are doing well on that point too well they just released the all season attendance records and the Dodgers and Yankees led all of major league baseball Dodgers drew 3,860,000 phenomenal number if you ever get to 4 million that's a number hardly anybody ever reaches 3.86 Dodgers Yankees 3.1 plus Atlanta 3.1 plus Cardinals, a shade over 3 million. Padres, the Padres, fifth in attendance. Small market San Diego, (laughs) 2,990,000 fans during the regular season. Second highest of all time. The first one was a shade over 3 million the first year they opened Petco Park. Baseball in San Diego is a big, big thing. And I, I reflect back to what I told Peter Seidler the first time I met him. And he knew me. I did not know him. I told Peter Seidler, you put a winner on the field, 
you'll get 3 million fans. Well, they put a winner on the field, and you got everybody's wearing Padre Brown and gold now. But the thing is, you do draw the out-of-town fan. Pirate fan comes. Cub fans come. Mm-hmm. Dodger fans obviously buy a lot of tickets. I don't know if there'll be much Dodger blue in the stadium come Friday, but... Yeah, San Diego is a melting pot of people from everywhere. 2.99 million for Padre attendance. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, credit to Seidler. I mean, he stepped up, he made the investment in his organization, and the fans came out and supported him. Um, it'd be, it'd be very interesting to be, you know, behind the, the curtain and looking at the books, you know, in terms of his profit and loss and how much is he ponying out of his own pocket. But you just got to credit the guy. He's doing good for San Diego. Well, they've raised their ticket prices. 18 percent this year, 20 percent next year. They have a big TV contract, a national TV contract, so they're doing well. I think the most disgraceful part of baseball, if you look at the other end of the spectrum and that attendance number, the Oakland Athletics, and I think this is a disgrace. Oakland Athletics, bad product on the field. I understand that. Drew 748,000 fans. 748, just a third of what the normal teams got. And you got that, you got Miami, um, you got Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, all at the bottom of the attendance rate. All those guys, all those owners, they get TV contract money. They get revenue sharing money. Mm-hmm. They all have payrolls of under $60 million, and the end result is a bad product on the field. Baseball's got to change that because that's not fair to the baseball communities. It's not really fair to the players when you've got these owners at the bottom rung that are allowed to have these minuscule payrolls, and then they have terrible records and garbage attendance. So I don't know when baseball is going to change that, but they really need to look to a, what I call a floor to spending. If everybody had to spend $100 million, and they're all getting money from TV and from mm-hmm. revenue sharing in these markets, if everybody had to spend $100 million, I guarantee you'd have a better team on the field in Oakland and Pittsburgh and Kansas City, and you would not be drawing 749,000 fans per game when everybody else is drawing $2 million to, in some cases, $3 million. So that's baseball. we got football to talk about. Okay. I mean, the, the, we I watched the Chargers um, over the weekend, and you know they were on television in Cleveland, and that was just a crazy game. I mean, especially how it all came down to the very end. Entertaining game, shootout game. I mean, when you have the kind of points and yards that they put up on the board, that was pretty impressive, and they almost lost it. Brandon Staley's being critiqued. Well, so be it. When you gamble as much as he has gambled on fourth down, Sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you make a mistake, and he almost made a mistake. Yeah, he did. I mean, actually, they went for it a couple times on fourth and two and did not make it. Uh, Justin Herbert bailed them out. Austin Eckler had a phenomenal 71-yard run en route to a 173-yard career rushing day. Chargers could not stop Cleveland. I thought it was going to be a high-scoring game. Uh, the Chargers have got issues, though, aside from Brandon Staley's gamble. They've they've still got the injury issue. Keenan Allen is still not back. Uh, had another setback at the end of last week. Uh, has not practiced hardly at all this week. Obviously, there is no Joey Bosa. They're having problems in the secondary with J.C. Jackson, the big money cornerback, who is he's given up 12 receptions in two games that he started, which is not good. And this guy was paid a phenomenal amount of money to come in here and to be a shutdown corner. So the Chargers have some real player personnel issues. That being said, they're sitting there, John, at 3-2. and two, And that being said... They have an opportunity to put a winning streak together. And I think this is what we have to have to look into this equation. They're going to play a battered Denver Bronco team on Monday. Then they get Seattle, which is not what Seattle used to be. Then they get Atlanta. They need to put a winning streak together. They, they need to be sitting here at 6-2 and two by the time they get to the bye week. 
Because once they get done, uh, after they come off this series of games, Chargers' schedule includes at San Francisco, which you know is going to be a dogfight, mm-hmm. Kansas City, at Arizona, and Kyler Murray. Then they got to go play the Raiders in Vegas and then Tua in Miami. So they better have a hot streak now. It cannot be any setbacks because once we get to mid-November and they get off this bye week they have, schedule is pretty doggone tough. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, with with the um, the game, it was crazy. Like when they played Cleveland, they were it was only like about a minute left. They had a two point lead. They had the ball in their own territory. You know, you play by the book. They should punt, right? Yeah, put put uh, Jacoby Brissett on a long field and make him go ninety yards with no timeouts. Exactly. But they instead they went for it on fourth. And I love when some coaches go for it on fourth, especially when they're on the other side of the field. They were like around what the thirty thirty five yard line, forty two, I think the forty two. Yeah. So. I mean that was a that was an unnecessary risk it seemed, and then Cleveland marches down the field and that, what they missed the field goal at the very end. I mean they could have burned Staley and the Chargers. Yeah, and and that field goal kicker Cade York the week before had nailed a fifty eight yarder on the final play to win it, and he missed two field goals in in the closed end of the stadium in Cleveland that cost him. And that he hits both those field goals, the Browns have a win and the Chargers have a really bad loss. But so that's where we are. That's not the only team that's got issues in Southern California, I'll guarantee you that. Oh jeez. The the Rams Cowboys game, I watched part of that as well. What a, just a, a train wreck of a game. And the Cowboys are playing their you know, backup quarterback, and they're just running right over the Rams. Rams are just not the same team physically, probably not emotionally, that they were that won the Super Bowl, John. Uh, they, they've, you know, if you look at their three losses, they've gotten battered. They got battered by Buffalo. And then they got battered with their second loss, San Francisco. And then they lose this game. They're just not the same team. And they got problems across the board. I mean, you can check all these boxes. They got five offensive linemen hurt. Uh, Cooper Cup is catching every pass. There's no help on the other side. They paid Allen Robinson $15 million a year to come from Chicago. John, at breakfast this morning, he's got 12 catches, 12 wow. receptions in five games, and they're not targeting him. And the t- tight end Tyler Higby does what he can do, but he's hurt. There's no running game whatsoever to talk about. And the defense looks all beat up. As great as Aaron Donald is, they got a whole series of problems on the defensive side of the football. This, this is not a good situation for Sean McVay, and they have no salary cap money to go get anybody. There's no trades because they traded all their draft picks away. I mean, every, everything they did to become who they were last year uh, got them a Super Bowl ring, but now it's gotten them into hot water. And then to complicate it, you got Matthew Stafford. 21 sacks in five weeks, 21 sacks, seven picks, four fumbles, and he's not able to throw deep either because this elbow is flared and he he can't have the ability to get it down the field or he can't get guys open to get it down the field. Uh, The Rams, you check off all the boxes. They got a whole pile of issues here. Yeah, I mean it's it's big trouble in LA and the fans, you know, you figure they they supported the team for the Super Bowl run. I mean, it's just got to be a bucket load of disappointment for the Rams fans out there. Um and it's it's kind of sad the way it just un, uh, unravels so quickly. Well, season's not over, but they're 2 and 3 and there's still a lot of tough games to play and I pose the question, you created this aura and you built this roster and there's, now there's no way to make it any better. There's no players out there to go get. You have no draft picks to trade. There are no running backs out there. There's no left tackle you can find on the street that's any good. Sean McVay's 
and and Les Snead, the general manager, I think have created some real issues for this organization. So we'll, we'll see where it goes from there. Now we got a lot of junk off the field. Boy, there's a lot of junk off the field to talk about. Yeah, I mean, well, Roger Goodell has got a problem. I mean, with with all the concussion things that are going on. And did you see that play in the Monday night game when Carr got sacked and they called a, a roughing the passer? It just seems that things aren't the reality isn't matching up with the way the, the referees are calling the rules. NFL owners meeting Monday and Tuesday, their they're mid-fall meeting. They will evaluate what is roughing the quarterback. That's the question around the league. Uh, John, we're five weeks into the season. 13 quarterbacks have been hurt in five weeks. Concussions, hits, knees, shoulders. It's a 13 starting quarterbacks have gone down with significant injuries. A couple of clubs have lost both their quarterbacks, led by what's happened in Miami to Tua and to Teddy Bridgewater. The, the burning question uh, in the league is the hits. And now they are discussing. It's not in proposal form yet, John, but they are discussing using instant replay video in the booth, not a coach's challenge, in the booth. We we know that the booth automatically reviews touchdowns and turnovers. Well, the booth is now possibly have the opportunity to do video replay immediately on hits on the quarterback. Is it roughing the passer? Was it incidental contact? Was it accidental? Was it, was it intentional? And the question is, we know about head hits. That's roughing the passer. Mm-hmm. But now we've got this whole synergy of pass rushers taking players and slinging them into the turf. We've had like three major incidents in the last couple of weeks where guys got hurt and they threw flags. What are they going to do about slinging? What are they going to do about hits to the knees? We had a couple of incidents where late hits. What do they do about launching into a quarterback when the ball's away? It's a very complicated issue because you can't ask a player to go after that quarterback, get airborne, and now suddenly stop himself when the ball's away. You can't do that. It's going to be very challenging. But you've got the technology to get this thing right. Uh, we've had only 29 roughing calls in the first five weeks of the season, which is a lot less than we've had in the past. Is that because the officials are letting this stuff go? Or, I mean, here, here's the bottom line. You've got 13 quarterbacks hurt in five weeks. So now the league has to really evaluate what is roughing? What is just a football play? And are we protecting the quarterbacks lesser than we did before? Should we be protecting them more, considering how important that position is? And some of the hits have just, just been savage, just terrible. So that's what Roger Goodell is going to meet with the competition committee and the owners as to do they make a change? Do we add video replay in the booth, not a coach's challenge, in the booth? Was that roughing? Was it a football play? Tough call. I think you've got it right. I think they have the technology to, to fix this. Um, you know, we're dealing with the same thing in baseball. You know, the, ultimately, as fans, we just want them to get it right. Um, and if there's a little bit of a delay, I'm, I don't have a problem with that. But at the same time, they have to protect the quarterbacks. They have to protect all of the players from vicious hits, from the head injuries. And from an economic point of view, those quarterbacks, so those are the star players. I mean, so they've got to be able to protect those assets as well. So I like that call. You know, let's, let's get someone in the booth and review it. It's interesting. Uh, Andy Reid coming out of that game uh, with the Chiefs and the, and the Chargers. I just said Chiefs and the Raiders. Andy Reid said, I want you to protect my quarterback, but I want you to let my guys play football too. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> so we're flipping here. 
Uh, tough call. Big, big week two for controversy in the league. You know, we talked about this this storyline involving the Rams and and what's going to transpire next. And oh, this this owner's meeting is also going to be about that guy. That guy is Stan Kroenke, the owner of the Rams who moved the team out of St. Louis, went to Los Angeles, followed by a lawsuit by St. Louis that they. They settled out of court. The NFL awarded St. Louis $790 million in, quote, damages for violating the transfer rule. When when the Rams were negotiating to move to Los Angeles, Kroenke evidently made the statement, I will take care of any owners if there's any litigation. Well, now Kroenke has gone back on that promise because the tab is $790 million. And the NFL is meeting on Monday and Tuesday to determine who pays what. The league has already paid the lump sum to St. Louis. They did it Christmas Eve. But now they're coming back, and they're, are they going to hand out bills to every team in the league and charge them a piece of the $790 million? Or are they going to dump it on Kroenke's desk? Kroenke's response, and I'd never heard this before till this week, Kroenke's response was, I put the NFL back in Los Angeles. I built that $5 billion SoFi Stadium on my nickel. Mm-hmm. You are sharing all the profits based on what I've done because there is revenue sharing, gate receipts and all that for each club. So everybody in the league is getting a piece of a check from what Kroenke's drawing with Rams home games. And now he is of the opinion, you need to take care of me. We need to share this expense, the 790 just like you're sharing my revenues that I've helped create for the league. This is interesting to see where this goes. I mean, that's kind of a, a BS line because he's the one that violated the deal, right? I mean, did they break the, the their contract, their lease agreement? No, it was their lease agreement was open. That was a franchise that was a free agent. Okay. But the league, John, the league had said, we always take care of the home market. We want to protect the home yeah, market. Right. Keep the team in the home market. Yeah. How that worked down the street here with yeah. our San Diego Chargers. Uh, so that that's a big, big issue. Uh, as to whether everybody should pay a piece of this this price, the $790 million, mm-hmm. or whether this is strictly on Kroenke. And by the way, that owner, that's not the only controversial thing going on around the National Football League. we got the other guy, the other guy in Washington. I mean, we're, we're talking about Brett Favre here? No, we're talking, I'm sorry. We're talking about the ex-Packer store. Okay, okay. My, my bad. And, and like, yeah, he— how did he get into this mess with his family and volleyball and, and welfare fraud? I mean, it's crazy. Well, it's a deep, complex story. Just the background on Brett Favre's situation. He's a Mississippi boy, went to southern Mississippi. Uh, Brett Favre went to politicians and said, I'm trying to raise money to support my alma mater, southern Mississippi. Smaller Division One program, dirt poor, etc. Brett Favre, very influential. Politicians came back and said, we have access to funds that we can grant you that you can then pass on to southern Mississippi. They did not tell him where the funds were coming from. There's a huge fraud case in Mississippi against a former governor and others using federal money that was supposed to go to poor people. Mississippi is one of the dirt poorest states in the country. Mm -hmm. Using some of that money, funneling Brett Favre. Brett Favre took it and funneled a chunk of it to Southern Mississippi University to build athletic facilities. He's under a little bit of fire, too, because he's got a private foundation, and he's done a lot of charitable stuff. 
The foundation was to raise money through donations for cancer patients and education of kids, high school kids from poor communities. Well, now we find out that not only did Favre take this money and direct it to Southern Miss, but he also took the foundation money and gave $163,000 in foundation money to some high schools where he lives in southern Mississippi for athletic facilities. And he was supposed to take a large chunk of that money. He took 163, gave it to high schools. He took only 10,000, gave it to cancer programs and only 10,000 to education programs for black communities. Mm-hmm. So now there's a question about where are your priorities? You've raised all this money through Favre for Foundation and you redirected it to high school athletics rather than taking care of people who are ill or people that need education. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the federal money contract came up publicly, he paid the money back. He paid the $1.1 million that he had been given. He paid it back for speaking engagements he was supposed to do that he never did. Hmm. He said he had no knowledge whatsoever that this was federal money. All he did was, quote, trust government people who were directing federal money to him for southern Mississippi. Story has not been told yet, but he's not been charged with anything. But it's a really, really bad optic for a, a guy that is a great player and did a lot of great things in his home state. But... This looks bad about how he redirected his foundation money and then obviously what he did with the federal money that he took and sent to the university. Yeah, I mean, you know, in, in the NFL, Brett Favre is a Hall of Famer. He's beloved by up in Green Bay and throughout the league. But it, this this is a story that has gone beyond the world of sports. It's entered the world of current events and politics and everything. And he's getting so much heat. And to your point, it, is it deserved? Is he manipulating it? Was he ignorant of really where that money was coming from. I think there's a lot of unknown. There's a, there's a lot of questions that we don't know the answer to. Well, we do know that former government officials got indicted. It's a massive fraud thing. It's just not a Brett Favre thing. Mm-hmm. It's a societal thing in the state of Mississippi. All right, before we move to college football, let's remind our viewers on our live stream how they can get involved with our fans forum. Okay, so We've got the fans forum. That's your opportunity to get involved. If you're watching the live stream on either YouTube or Facebook, just go ahead and type in the comment section your question for Hacksaw, your comment that you have about the playoffs with the Padres and the Dodgers or any of the other stories in Hacksaw's headlines. And we'll entertain those questions and comments in the fans forum. And that'll be at the very end of the podcast episode. And a reminder to all of our fans, I invite you to go to my website, LeeHacksawHamilton.com on the bottom of the homepage. You can register, you can subscribe to get the alerts when we have, and we post every day when we have things available on our website. So make sure you subscribe, too. Let's move to college football. Yeah, I mean, the it's incredible what's happening up in L.A. I mean, we knew one of those teams was going to be good, but the other team, the team in Westwood, they're also undefeated. Uh, USC is 6-0. and uh, USC, tough game, Salt Lake City, Utah. UCLA is 6-0. and UCLA coming off an enormous victory over the University of Washington that nobody saw coming. Mm -hmm. Uh, Both teams have got vibrant offenses. There's no doubt Lincoln Riley has done a spectacular job at Southern Cal with with the transfer quarterback Caleb Williams and all the other transfers, Travis Dye from Oregon, Jordan Addison from Pitt. He's got unbelievable firepower on offense. A tough game for them. The last two USC games have been a lot tighter than anybody thought. Now they go to Utah. Utah had a great start. They're kind of angry. They got punched in the mouth a week ago. It will not be an easy game at Rice-Eccles Stadium in Salt Lake City. UCLA, I don't know if this is a one-time aberration because they've not had a lot of success 
under Chip Kelly, but he's got he's got a fourth year starting quarterback in Dorian Thompson Robinson who mm-hmm. throws the ball, runs the ball. DTR got a heavy duty running back in Zach Charbonnet, transfer from the University of Michigan. They're playing better defense than I thought possible. So that was really a statement win for them just a couple of weeks ago uh, when UCLA. I mean, they punched Washington in the mouth, and Washington was unbeaten. Washington has not recovered since that that loss. So this is interesting because, obviously, SC and UCLA are going to meet at the end of the season. question is, are both of them going to push their way into the upper echelon of the polls? One is seven, one is ten. Can they push themselves to the point they might be considered to be a, a playoff team, especially with what's happened above at the top with with Georgia and Alabama and guys getting scared, almost losing games and dropping, flipping down in the polls. So uh, we got Michigan's hot. They play Penn State this week, so one of them's going to probably drop back in the poll. Is this possible? SC and UCLA could both be playoff teams by the time we get to the first of December. Stay tuned. I mean, imagine that they make the both make the college football playoff, which would be crazy, and then they jettison and they go to the Big Ten. Well, that's a couple of years down the road. Yeah. That's, that's not going to happen a week from Monday. But still, I mean, these are like your two marquee teams now in the Pac-12, and they're they're on their, their way out. And then, meanwhile, we we talked about this a number of weeks ago that UCLA had this cupcake schedule. In the beginning. So the first two, maybe three wins, we, we saw it coming. But yeah, they, they started playing serious competition. And now you're thinking maybe Chip Kelly's got something going on. Either that or it's a one-time aberration because would they be the same program once that quarterback leaves? And he will leave at the end of the season. I don't know if he's an NFL quarterback, but he's a pretty good player. Other football team in town. You want to talk about the Aztecs? Yeah, I mean, what a, what an amazing game. I mean, you know, here's Jalen Maiden, you know, the former, what was he, like the fifth string quarterback. He wanted to play. He's playing safety. And then all the, all the quarterbacks go down like dominoes. He gets the start and he threw for over 300 yards. And granted, you know, they're playing Hawaii, but still, what a great game. What a great opportunity for that young man. Uh, He's a skilled kid who came from Mississippi State, and he was part of just a a backlog of quarterbacks, and he never got a lot of snaps. And evidently, he must not have shown an awful lot because they kind of just shoved him off to the side. Now, he's a big athlete. He's 6'2 and 215, 220. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the cameo appearances he had as a quarterback last year when Lucas Johnson, the then starter, got hurt, I thought he played very competitively, and all of a sudden, he's no longer a quarterback, and they moved him to safety, where he's a great athlete. He might wind up being an NFL-caliber player uh, in the secondary because he's so big and he's fast and he can run. Mm -hmm. They had a week to get him ready. Just a week. Now, I grant you they're playing Hawaii, which is really downtrodden. But, pal, you go 24 for 32 for 322, that's pretty impressive. Now, they have a bye week this week, and the issue is... Braxton Burmeister, the Virginia Tech transfer, who's had three injuries in five weeks, is still in concussion protocol. He had one limited workout, and they had to take him off the field again. So I don't know that Braxton Burmeister is going to be ready a week from now when they, they go on the road and they go play at Nevada. Uh, Jalen Maiden has worked hard to deserve this. He's obviously a student of the game. He's obviously an athlete. So maybe this is, this is a quarterback that can bail him out of this injury issue. I will say this, though, and I'm, I'll be critical. I asked the question about San Diego State's coaching staff, and this starts with Brady Hoke, and it goes through offensive coordinator and quarterback coach. You didn't recognize this kid's ability? This kid did this in one week, and you had him as a fifth-string quarterback, and had he not transferred again, 
He wound up going to be a safety. So I, I just I question whether this coaching staff and that leadership has the ability to develop offenses that match what modern-day football is. And modern-day football is going down the field all the time. Um, they need, they're going to hire an offensive coordinator once the season has ended. It better be a guru who can recruit quarterbacks and develop quarterbacks. Because, John, we haven't had that at San Diego State. Despite the great success Brady Hoke and Rocky Long have had, they have not developed quarterbacks, not game changers, maybe game managers. Thank God they could run the ball, but they're not running the ball very well this year because every young offensive line they weren't protecting. That's why Burmaster has been so banged up. Um, so I just I posed the question about the Aztec coaching staff. Who are these people? You didn't recognize that kid's talent? And look what he did. He bailed them out. He oh, saved them. Yeah at least in that first game against Hawaii, and I think he's probably going to be actively involved at quarterback, especially if the Burmeister injury. Those concussions are scary. That's a gray area. That takes time. So that's my spin on the Aztecs. Well, I think what happens is, is a lot of times coaches fall in love with certain players. You know, they've got their own pecking order, and they're going to give their number one guy every opportunity. Even though there's a guy like Jalen Maiden that's down the depth chart, he just doesn't get the shot. And if it wasn't for the injuries and the defections and all the other chaos with the quarterback situation, Maiden would still be playing safety. And we'd still be, you know, lucky to throw 100 yards a game. Yeah, and I'll throw the addendum comment on to this. This is the same coaching staff that didn't see a future for Lucas Johnson last year's starter and kind of ran him off. Lucas Johnston leads one double-A football in total offense, throwing and running at Montana. Think about that. Now, granted, that's one double-A. It's different than the Mountain West a little bit. It's surely not the Pac-12. So there's a question here about the Aztec coaching staff and recognizing talent on offense because Johnson played well at the end of last season, made in his cameo appearance, played well. And Johnson's gone and Maiden moved to safety because they didn't see in the big picture that he could produce. Uh, uh, I might be the only one in this community who's raising questions about Brady Hoke and the assistant coaching staff, but somebody needs to say something, so I did. Yeah, well, good on you. I mean, but who do the Aztecs who they got to buy this week, right? Buy this week, then they go to Nevada, still to come Fresno State. But the league is upside down. Fresno State's quarterbacks had a high ankle sprain, and uh, without Jake Hayner, they're not the same program. But there's, there's still some tough games on the schedule to be played. Hey, it's the opening week of the NBA season next week. And we got stories on the court, but we got a story off the court. And I don't think this story line is going to go away, John. Oh, I mean, the, this whole Draymond Green thing, I, what, he got into a fight with one of his teammates, with Jordan Poole. I mean, it, this is usually a special time of the year, you know, with, with basketball, because the NBA is playing the preseason. College basketball is a few weeks away. And it's just terrible to see this, especially for the NBA champions. Golden State's got an issue, and I'm going to use two words here. They're not going to say it, but I will say it. Draymond Green, two words, mental health. Here's a big issue. His persona has changed in the last year and a half. He's become a real ruffian for the Golden State Warriors. And you need tough guys on your roster and you need guys who are going to come off the bench and are going to bang and you need guys who are going to stand up for the, the stars on the team. But his persona on the court as a guy looking for trouble really grew last year. And in the playoffs, I mean, he was on the brink of getting suspended because he was compiling so many technical fouls. Yeah. So his his persona has changed. 
he he got into an argument with his teammate Jordan Poole at practice. And I don't know whether it had to do with work ethic or blown plays, but Draymond Green walked up to Jordan Poole and made a comment. And then they body bumped. And they, and they kept up the dialogue. And then Jordan Poole pushed him back. And Draymond Green hit him with a right, vicious right. Could have fractured his uh, orbital bone. Could have fractured his jaw. So he was removed from the team uh, for the better part of a week. He apologized profusely. He says, I'm a flawed person. I am going to get counseling, etc. So I, I think the Warriors and Steve Kerr, who's one of the great people in the game, the Warriors need to perceive his mental health status. Because here I am, a talk show guy and an NBA fan who watches a lot of games. I just see that he has changed drastically as a player. And I, I know if you're the enemy and you say, that guy's out of control, that guy needs to be dealt with. If you're in the Bay Area, my guy Draymond Green, yeah. he's just doing his job. Right. But Golden State emotionally has to, I think, keep tabs on him because to me, there's a mental health question that needs to be posed. What has he turned into? My opinion. Well, I mean, he's had a history of this sort of thing. I mean, remember those, what was it, the 2017 NBA championships? I mean, he punched LeBron below the belt, Mm -hmm. you know, and got thrown out. And that actually led to LeBron's team winning the championship that year. So to your point, it's like if he's our guy, we like him. But if he's on the other team, he's the villain. Um, kind of makes you wonder, you know, to, with this sort of mental health thing, is there a CTE issue that would maybe happen in the NBA? I mean, those guys are banging around too. Yeah, but you don't you don't know about CTE until you do an autopsy after the person's passed. Mm. I don't know if he's had a lot of concussions, but he's just he's acting differently. You you remember the Detroit Pistons bad boys? Oh yeah, yeah, the malice in the palace and all that. Yeah, he's playing like those guys now. I mean, we're talking about real rough stuff. So we'll see where this goes. He will be with them opening night when he gets his ring. I talked to somebody affiliated with Golden State today. They think it's going to take at least half a season for those fences to be mended. So we'll see if if he can become a better teammate. There's no doubt that he's a tough guy player and he's integral to what Golden State does. Now, we got the other team in town. We have not talked about this, but it's the opening of the National Hockey League season, and that also means the opening season for those guys. Yeah, the San Diego Gulls. You know, I went to a game last year, and I had a great time at the sports arena. It was a lot of fun. And, you know, it's it's real it's real hockey here in San Diego, and they practice right up here in Poway, you know, at, up in the business park. So, yeah, good for these guys getting started. Uh, Gulls are a great organization. I mean, I always felt San Diego was going to be a viable hockey market. I remember talking back in the days when the L.A. Kings and the Anaheim Ducks front offices decided to that we needed a Pacific Division in the American Hockey League. And next thing you know, we had an eight-team Pacific Division because all the teams out west in the NHL had working agreements in places like Providence and Syracuse and St. John's Newfoundland. It was impossible to get players to your club if you had a siege of injuries. Mm -hmm. So they came up with the idea, let's expand the American Hockey League, and they came up with a formula that every NHL team had to have an AHL affiliation at the top tier of minor league hockey. And they located all these franchises out here. And the goals are, are the flag carrier for the Pacific Division. I mean, they they average eight to 9,000 per game. 
after Christmas when they've been winning. Over a couple of years, they draw 12,000 every Saturday night or every Friday night. It's really become a cool thing to do. And hockey's gone through a rebirth across America. And go back to my melting pot statement, you know, San Diego's a melting pot for hockey fans. I was asked when the American Hockey League announced they were expanding to San Diego, I was asked to come MC an event at Sports Arena. And we didn't know how many were going to show up. And I kept telling the, the Ducks people that this is a great hockey market. We had on a Sunday afternoon in February, 8,300 people came to the sports arena for the debut of Gulls Hockey, meet really? the team, etc. I mean, it was a fascinating thing. And they've been really good. They've been one of the top teams in the league over the last six years. They had a bit of a sub-down season last year because of the pandemic. Did not play any home games. They played up in, in Anaheim, which is really tough on the players. But the, this is a, it's a new year. New coach, Roy Somner, won, has won 808 games in the American Hockey League. Spent 26 years in the San Jose Sharks system. The, he's an old dog guy, but he knows how to develop players. So he has come in the front door. Now, the Gulls are opening this weekend on the road in Grand Rapids. They come back next week. They start the home schedule uh, with the Ontario Reign. The team has to replace its two leading scorers, has to replace six defensemen, has to replace 84 goals on the roster. It's going to be a very, very different hockey team under a brand new coach. But they have brought in, they got two veteran goalies, both back. Ali Anderson Eck and Lucas Dostal. Dostal is on the brink of becoming an NHL goaltender. He's that close. He's really, really good. But what they've done is they've, they've gone out. And they got a goal scorer from the Calgary Farm System. Actually, they got two guys from the Calgary Farm System. They got number one draft pick defenseman who had been uh, with the Vancouver Canucks. They brought back a guy that was with the New Jersey Devils last year in Chase DeLeo, who's been very productive while he was a goal. He left as a free agent. Now he's come back. So they've got veteran firepower to go with a couple of young guys the Gulls have sent here. But to me, the most critical thing is not only Roy Somner's history as a coach developing players in the A, they got two goaltenders who are really good and Dostal is really good and Dostal is one phone call away from going to the NHL and playing for the Anaheim Ducks and you know the Ducks roster is made up of San Diego goals alumni I mean it's it's amazing how many high draft picks have come through here so uh, long answer to your question hockey is big in San Diego with this place is a melting pot of people from everywhere when I emceed that event at the sports arena you could not walk around the corridors of the sports arena without seeing somebody wearing a Red Wings jersey, a Maple Leafs jersey, a Montreal jersey. Nice. It, was, it was absolutely phenomenal. And their Friday night, Saturday night games, man, that, that building rocks. And if you have a good team, that building really rocks. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was a great time. And, and I think it's so special. We have this in San Diego, even though they're playing in that dump of the sports arena. But hopefully that's going to get remodeled and we're going to get a new facility there. But you have um, a history doing play-by-play for hockey. Yep. I mean, all across the country. You know, remind the viewers kind of a little bit more of your your hockey background. Well, I came out of a hockey background. I'm a guy who grew up on the, in the Northeast. I grew up in hockey. And my first job broadcasting uh, was minor league hockey. Uh, you remember the movie Slapshot? Oh, yeah. Slapshot was the league that I was in as the Eastern Hockey League. Oh, and, nice. And 80% of the stories in Slapshot are true. And 80% of the guys in that movie of Slapshot were guys that were in our league, and some of them were my teammates, including the starting goaltender in Slapshot was our starting goaltender in Mohawk Valley. Nice. So 
I came out of a hockey background. I spent four years in the minor leagues riding the bus, drinking beer. We called it the Brotherhood of the Bus. Tough life. My God, it's really hard. But all those stories and slap shot are true. And then I went to the World Hockey Association. I did the Cleveland Crusaders and the Indianapolis Racers. I was in Indy when Gretzky was a rookie, and he was there for about four weeks before they sold him to Edmonton. And we know the story of what the Oilers became. So I continue to be a huge hockey fan in addition to all the other things that I cover and like to cover. That's awesome. All right, fans forum. All right. Who is here? Who would like to participate via Facebook and Twitter? You got questions about the Padres and the Dodgers. We want to hear them. You got questions about the Chargers and the Rams. We want to hear them. If you want to ask a question about some of the other quote topics on the table that we put up there, we'll answer them too. John, where do you want to start? Pick them, pal. Pick them, pal. This is from Jesse Cottrell. Lee, can we please talk about Manny Machado defense? Gold glove, baby. MVP candidate, baby, has grown into the role. Uh, I don't know whether he wanted it to be this way, but it is this way. I maintain this. Fernando Tatis arrived with such flourishing glitter that he forced Manny Machado to become a better player and a better teammate. Oh, no doubt. I would have never imagined Manny would be the kind of leader because I had issues with him in that Padre Clubhouse. And Guys in Baltimore that I link with said, oh, you're, you're going to love this, dealing with this character, because he had a bad ending in with the Orioles. He had a really crummy ending with the Dodgers. You know, you recall when the Dodgers got him at the trade deadline, they were renting him before he became a walk-free agent, John. Mm-hmm. And what, what happened was that Manny didn't hustle, and he got called out on it. And then he granted an interview and said, I don't have to hustle 100% all the time. I'll do it when I want. Well, that Mm -hmm. turned everybody on him. And that's why he's been booed so viciously. Well, that was a reputation he dragged with him, in addition to his statistics, to Petco Park. And I didn't think he was much of a teammate. And I I thought he loafed a little bit with the Padres. But I think the arrival of Tatis changed everything uh, with Manny Machado. So he's an MVP candidate. I now view him very differently. And I'll tell you, he grinds. And I think he really loves the game. Look at how many games he plays. And even when he was hurt, how he forged his way back on the field and took him a while to start to play better. So uh, he's, I think he is as viable an MVP guy and is just hugely important to, as a cornerstone of the franchise. Yeah, I mean, he's really matured as a man, um, as well as a leader and as an athlete. So the, the, the plays he made last night at third base were just fantastic. Plays he's made, uh, nobody's made at third base since the days of the late Ken Caminetti. Yeah, just a remarkable talent. And I'm just so happy he's on the Padres. So, you know, this is just such a special time, you know, for for San Diego. Well, uh, before you wave your pom-pom, let's please understand that the the win on Wednesday night, Conan Canada's one win. We do have games Friday, Saturday, or Friday, Saturday, and Sunday still to be played. Next question. Next question. All right. So how about this one here? This is uh, from, from Ron Hulin. I don't follow baseball ever since the 1988 season. I'm an old Dodger fan. But I'm going to say your Padres will win this series hands down. Well, we talked a week ago. John, thank you. Ron, thanks for the, the, the note. We talked a week ago about my concern that the Dodgers had holes in their pitching staff because suddenly they got all these guys hurt. And then I was really stunned they left Kimbrell off the playoff roster as, as erratic as he might be. He still has more good outings and bad outings, and don't you need somebody like that? Uh, you know, they've had five of their seven guys in the starting rotation are on the DL for extended periods, and obviously there is no Walker Bueller. And Dustin May had the same surgery Bueller had, 
And we don't know if he's 100 percent back, but if he's right, he's really dominant. So I, I felt a couple of weeks ago, and I, I brought this up, we talked about it, that the Dodgers have some pitching depth issues. And I think adding into the, the conversation, as I said earlier on our podcast, Padres don't fear them anymore. I, I think that the Padre win wins against the Mets have changed the whole persona of that clubhouse and the confidence now as they play the Dodgers. Now, we'll find out which of these starting pitchers can give them innings and length when they play Friday night. Does Gonsolin get a th- into the third or the fourth inning? Because that'd be important. And if Blake Snell can capture some magic and be sometimes what he's been at home games at Petco Park, then you say maybe the Padres have a chance. But if Gonsolin can't get out of the second inning, if Blake Snell's pitch count rockets, that means they got to go to alternative guys, and the stress on the bullpens will get worse and worse and worse. Tied 1-1, bring on game three. I'm ready. Next question. <laughs> All right, let's see who we else we got here. Um, yeah, here, I mean, no one is talking about Manny's clutch D. Let's go, Padres. I mean, people are just really fired up for this series. Uh, we're going to get started on tomorrow night here in San Diego. Yeah, exciting. Uh, baseball has kind of hit on a jackpot formula. You know, the when they started the wild card thing, John, were one and done. A lot of people thought, oh, my God, that is electric. You play 162 games, and now the 163rd game, you either go on or you go home. And people say, wow. But people are also concerned that's kind of unfair to have only a one-game play-in. So now they've made it a best of three, and they they play three consecutive days unless the weatherman interferes. Uh, and, I mean, it's must-see TV. I The other day, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, I was on the disabled list. I had oral surgery, and I'm sorry. I just felt like crap. <laughs> I felt just to the left side of death. I sat on the couch with ice packs, and I watched chunks of all four playoff games. And it was I'm a baseball fanatic. I oh just, yeah, yeah. I just I had a good time, even though I was feeling really lousy. So I, I think baseball's really hit on something now with the novelty. I don't know if 162 games is really reasonable. It's a terrible grind. The wear and tear on teams and players is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I'd love to see him kick it back to when you and I were kids growing up and played 154. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to see more off days. Off days are gold to players just to take a deep breath and step away from it. But at this point in time, there's so much money out there to be made by playing 164 and now by playing the wild card. And everybody's... Everybody's getting rich over the, over the contracts, but it's really good theater to get to the end of the season and pal win or go home. Yeah, and 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 in the, the the wild card round, I think three of the four road teams won. I mean, which makes it really exciting. Um, but yeah, to your point, where you, when baseball starts to drift into the first week of November, that just doesn't feel right. It's, well, it's like. NHL playoffs drift into July 4th. That's ridiculous. So I'd, I'd like to see him compact the schedule a little bit. I'm a little bit old school where baseball used to end in September and you'd have the beginning of the World Series of the 1st of October and the leaves and the fall colors and all that. Yeah. You'd be done by October 15th. But uh, it's good. Baseball's hit on a unique formula here. Now they got to clean up the game and do some other things. And that's another topic for another day. Hey, listen, we hope you've enjoyed our podcast. We are here every Thursday. We uh, live stream on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter. Uh, It will be up on all of our audio platforms fairly quickly. Uh, I invite you to go to my website, leehacksawhamilton.com. I write on it every day. At the bottom of the right-hand side, there's a 
icon, which you can click to subscribe for free, and you will get automatic messages as we post a lot of unique things in addition to our big podcast. Uh, so I hope you'll do that. John, good to talk to you. Enjoy the great sports weekend that's yeah. ahead. We'll be back here next Thursday to either talk about the National League Championship Series or an autopsy on the just-concluded Padres season. Yeah, go Padres. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you next Thursday. Join us again for Hacksaw's Headlines on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And find the audio version on your favorite podcast app. Touchdown, San Diego! For more content, go to LeeHacksawHamilton.com.